So the reading today comes from John chapter 8, starting at verse 48, and it's on page 1664 of your Black Pew Bibles. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honour my father, and you dishonour me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet fifty years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Thanks for reading, Ellie, and good morning, everyone. It's been a big weekend uh, for the Trinity Network this weekend with the uh, launch of Trinity Youth, which is our youth group for our high schoolers. It has a name, Trinity Youth, and today we're going to be talking a lot about names. I think Trinity Youth is a, a good name for that group. It's a a, a group of uh, the uh, people who come from the network of the churches in the Trinity network, and it's for youth, Trinity youth. Makes sense, right? There are about 130 kids there, if you wanted to know. They had sumo suits, had indoor soccer, table tennis tables lined up, four of them in a row. Jack led the music. He did a fantastic job of leading the kids as they praise God. And we heard from Luke Dahlenberg, who's uh, working up at Trinity Grove, who preached a great message about on where we find satisfaction with Jesus. It was a great night. And if you um, have a chance, ask one of our high school youth kids who were there and find out what they thought about the night. I think it was terrific, and I look forward to seeing how it keeps going. Please keep praying for our youth. Please keep upholding them. It'd be a good thing to do. My name is Carl, and I'm the pastor of the church here. If we haven't met before, I'd love to say hello to you over a cup of tea or coffee today. Now, as I said, we're talking about names today, and so this week I decided to look up what my, my name means. I actually don't think I've ever done this before. If I had, I think I would remember what my name means. Apparently, uh, Carl is the Germanic version of the name Charles, and it means free man, or strong man, or even just manly. There you go. <laughs> so knowing that this morning, I thought about wearing my plaid shirt and my lumberjack boots, but... I chickened out. I'm just not living up to my name's sake at the moment. I wonder what stock you put in the meaning of a name. Chris apparently means the one who carries Christ. Jenny, a lady of the people, gracious and merciful. Jason means healer. It's appropriate. We've got at least two Jasons here who are doctors. Jonathan means the one who gives. And Michael, apparently that's a rhetorical question. Rhetorical question is supposed to say, like, who is like God? 
And the answer, of course, is no one is like God. But if you didn't know it was rhetorical, it'd be Michael, who is like God. Well, the two Michaels I know are a bit like God, but not quite. I wonder if you live up to your name's meaning. They call that, if you do, nominative determinism. And that kind of idea implies that you would somehow live out or live up to your namesake. And I suppose in our world today, we kind of know what this is like in terms of surnames. So we have a very common surname in Australia, Smith, and I assume that means that a few generations ago, there were lots of blacksmiths doing their work. still happens occasionally in our world today, doesn't it? There's a BBC weather reporter by the name Sarah Blizzard. And the guy who wrote the book on clinical neurology, his name is Lord or Sir Brain. And there's a US firefighter by the name of Lieutenant Les McBurney. Happens occasionally, doesn't it? And when our names, which form part of our identity, when that name has a meaning, I think it just adds a layer to who we are. Over the last few weeks at church, we've been looking at the way in which Jesus describes his identity, how he describes himself. We've been focusing, as we do that, on the I am sayings in the book of John. So we've seen so far, we saw it in the kids' talk this morning, Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. We've seen Jesus say, I am the light of the world. And there are seven of these I am sayings in the book of John. Next week, we're going to look at the next one in the line. And we've got three more weeks to do that. But there are also four instances in the book of John where Jesus identifies himself simply by saying, I am. And today, we're going to look at one of those four instances. Now, we might miss this at first glance, being Australians and not having some of the Jewish history that Jesus' original audience did. And what I want you to see today is that what Jesus is doing is he is using one of the most powerful names possible. It's a name that his Jewish audience, steeped in history, will know very well. I want you to see today that Jesus is saying when he says, I am, he is saying, I am God. He's saying, I am the first and the last. I am the everlasting. I am all there is. I want you to see that Jesus is then saying this about himself. He's saying, I am not just a great bloke. I am not just an excellent teacher. I am not just a wise counsellor. I am God. The great I am. That's where we're heading this morning. If you take nothing away other than that, please remember that. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm more than just a good teacher. I am God. But help us get our heads around this idea, we're going to need to understand a little bit more about what's going on in John chapter 8. And I want you to see this morning that we picked up our reading in the middle of an argument. And it's really an argument about authority. So to see that, it's helpful perhaps to turn back a few more verses earlier than where Ellie started reading this morning. I want you to see that Jesus is speaking to the Jews at this point, and in particular that he's speaking to the Jews who believed him. I think it's an interesting part. And yet, this argument, it's a caustic argument. Back in verse 44, have a look at chapter 8, verse 44, if you're with me. Jesus says this to those who are challenging him, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. 
So that's the sort of arguing that's going on here. This is the sort of dispute that we're reading in at the moment. The knives are out. Now this morning we don't have time to work our way through the entire argument that takes most of chapter 8. But that's okay because the argument is driving really at one point. We saw it in the kids' talk. It's there for us in verse 53. The Jews asked Jesus this question, Who do you think you are? I think that's the question that kind of governs this passage. Jesus, who do you think you are? And it drips, doesn't it, with sarcasm and mockery. Who do you think you are? wonder if anyone's ever asked you that question. I think the last time it was directed at me, or at least as I can remember, was when I was back as a kind of young teenager, early youth kind of age. I have a sister and I have two brothers and I'm the oldest And so I saw it as my job to kind of boss them around and direct them in the things that we had to do. So it was always my role to decide what sort of sandcastle we were building at the beach, that kind of thing. Being the oldest of four children, that was my job. It was my right, I thought. And so I was often asked by my siblings that question, who do you think you are? Well, they also asked it this way. You're not my boss or you're not dad. You see, at its heart, that question, who do you think you are, I think it's a question about authority. Who do you think you are? It's also a question, I think, that we should be asking of this text in John chapter 8 as we read it. Who do we think Jesus is? And by what authority does he speak? Because that's the question that's on the Jews' lips. Now, the Jews in this case, their authority is that they're resting on their heritage. They were born into the right ethnic group of people, or at least that's the way that they thought about themselves. You see this if you turn back with me to chapter 8, verse 31. I'm going to read a little bit from you, a little bit from that bit there to you. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? See, for the Jews, their heritage or their descent from their father Abraham, it's of great importance for them. And they consider themselves to be free, not slaves, although of course, in a sense, they kind of were slaves to the Roman Empire at this point. And here's the question, so who has the authority? Who knows God better? Those who have descended from Abraham or Jesus? Can you see why the argument's so fierce? Who knows God better? That, I think, is the context of the passage that Ellie read to us today. And into that context, then, Jesus is accused of being either a Samaritan or being demon-possessed. Essentially, they're saying, well, who else would denounce the value of Jewish ancestry. Certainly not a Jew. So you must either be demon-possessed or not a Jew, a Samaritan. And Jesus replies and he says, no, I'm not demon-possessed, but I seek to honour my Father. And we've seen this connection a number of times over the last few weeks now, this connection between Jesus and God the Father as he seeks to explain who he is. We saw it when Jesus described himself as the bread of life and the light of the world. And here we see it when he describes himself as the great I am. 
he goes to extraordinary efforts to illustrate his union with God the Father. So union, that means that the two of them are one, and yet they each have their own personhood and their own roles. Later in the book of John, in chapter 14, we'll see the Spirit being included into this union. And we have been fleshed out the Trinitarian relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God in three persons, but God as one. And here we see Jesus, he's not seeking his own glory. We see Jesus seeking the glory of his Father. Let me read to you verse 50. Jesus says this, I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Jesus knows his Father. That's where his authority comes from. You see the argument that's kind of building here in these verses? And then in verse 51, the stakes are kind of upped. Remember that Jesus is speaking here to those who believed him and he's encouraging them to be his disciples by following after him and by holding on to his teaching. And then in verse 51, he makes an extraordinary claim. He says this, Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. That's a bold and brassy and weighty claim, isn't it? Whoever obeys my word will never see death. We live in a world that's saturated with advertising and there are some pretty impressive claims being made by all sorts of companies about the products they sell. Beauty products that will make you look young again, foods that will improve your health. But of course we have rules and laws in place that mean you can't just make up any sort of claim and so to be a brave company that makes a claim as bold as Jesus's. Obey my words and you will never see death. And by this point, those who are listening to Jesus, they, well, they kind of lose it, don't they? They think this is absolutely preposterous. Now we know that Jesus is demon-possessed, they say. I think we today probably say something more like this. Now we know that you've lost your marbles. How can you promise that someone will not taste death? And for the Jews, even their greatest ancestor, Abraham, the man who followed God out of the land of Ur, who obeyed God's commands, well, even he died. And all the prophets of old, Jeremiah and Isaiah and Moses, they all died. And yet Jesus is promising that whoever obeys his words won't taste death. And this is not the first time we see this idea in the Gospel of John. Back in chapter 3, that most famous of all Bible passages, I think, in John chapter 3, verse 16, it says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And the idea of Jesus' words being life-giving, that's not new in John either. In, in John 6, verse 63, it says, the words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. And in verse 68, Peter answers Jesus in chapter 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? Your, you have the words of eternal life. John wants us to believe, our writer, our author, John wants us to believe in Jesus so that we won't taste death. And yet, today, we all know that even Jesus' closest disciples, they all still died a physical death. We know the Apostle Paul, 
still died? Has time proven Jesus to be a liar? Well, I think the answer to that is no. Because I think we're thinking of death as being the death of the body, but that is not, I think, what Jesus is concerned about. And that's not really what John's gospel is concerned about. I like what Don Carson has to say here. He says this, that for John, the gospel, the death of the body is a relatively small moment. A small moment. Of course, then, the assurance of life relates to the life that the physical death cannot extinguish. That is the life of the spirit. It's the life of the spirit that the believer receives. And, of course, also the life of the new body in the creation that is to come. So do you see what's going on so far in our argument between the Jews who believe Jesus and Jesus himself? He's promised eternal life to those who obey his words. And the Jews watching on say, now we know you're out of your mind. Not even Abraham could promise these things. And so they say, who do you think you are? It's a question that should cut right through to us today. Who do you think Jesus is? Do you think he's a good teacher? A wise man? Do you think he's just a revolutionary? What do you think? We've been reading about him for the last few weeks now, looking at what he's like. Who do you think you are? They ask of Jesus. I wonder if you've ever had a dilemma in life. Most of us, I imagine, face dilemmas almost on a daily basis. How about a trilemma? It's a word I learnt this week. And here's the classic trilemma that springs out of this case. It was first articulated by a man called John Duncan and it was later made famous by C.S. Lewis. This is the trilemma. Point one, Jesus was either a liar and a deceiver. Point two, Jesus had either lost his marbles or he was demon-possessed or he was mad. Well, here's the third bit in the trilemma. Point three, or he was divine or he was God. In other words, he could do these things that he was saying he was doing. He could only be one of these three things. And so what's happening here is I think we can't just read this passage and then consider Jesus' great teaching on things like the Sermon on the Mount about loving your enemies and turning the other cheek. We, we can't just take those words about Jesus without recognising his claims to divinity here. This is how C.S. Lewis most famously puts it. And he starts off with this straw man who kind of poses this question. This is what the straw man says. And I've got it on the screen behind me if Simon throws it up. It says this, the straw man, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher but I don't accept his claim to be God. And, and here's how C.S. Lewis kind of addresses that straw man. C.S. Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. 
but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Who do you think you are is the question the Jews ask of Jesus. The question I want us to be asking today as well. Who do you think Jesus is? And you might at this point just begin to wonder then, why doesn't Jesus just come out plain and simple and easy to understand language and just say, I am God? And I think in part it's because Jesus is not interested in his own greatness. He's not interested in his own glorification, at least not in terms of it coming from the people. He doesn't want tickets put on himself. He's not into self-promotion. He's simply telling the people the way that it is. You can see that there in verse 54. But in another sense, Jesus does say exactly that, that I am God. And we see him doing that in verses 56 through to 58. I want to read these verses to you again. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And much of the argument so far has been about Abraham. And Jesus says, well, Abraham, he was looking forward to seeing me come. And yet you're arguing with me. You're not rejoicing in my presence. And they say, how can that be? Abraham lived some like 2,000 years before Jesus. How could Abraham have looked forward to Jesus? That's the problem for those listening. And it's in his response to this question that we see Jesus get to that next I am statement that we're looking at. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. You know, for us reading it today, I wonder if your first kind of thought with this sentence is, why is Jesus speaking like Yoda? Why has he got his word order and the sentence all wrong? What on earth is he trying to say? And see, most of us don't have the Jewish heritage that Jesus' listeners have here. But I want you to see that Jesus is equating himself with God at this point. He's pointing to his eternal nature. He's showing us that he is God with the people. The word become flesh. And I think what is what's happening here when Jesus calls himself, I am. Let me show you this. Come back in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Right near the start of the Bibles, page 90. Exodus chapter 3, here in Exodus where with another of Israel's great fathers, not Abraham but Moses this time, and Moses has been out in the fields tending his flock and he's seen a bush on fire but the bush is not being burnt up. And then from within the voice, uh, within the bush, a voice calls out to Moses and it's God speaking, do not come any closer, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And the voice said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And God issues Moses here with instructions to go to Egypt and to bring the Israelites out of slavery, out of captivity. And yet Moses is worried. He's wondering, am I up for that task? He's worried that the Israelites won't listen to him. And so he says in verse 13 of Exodus chapter 3, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, 
what is his name, then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Pretty powerful, isn't it? All right, this is passage in John chapter 8 is starting to make sense for you now. But can you see the background to what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that his name is I am. That he's the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. That's a name with real power. That name has this idea of nominative determinism all wrapped up in it. Jesus is saying, I am God, I've come to save you. And just in case you think this is a stretch, if you think I'm reading too much into this passage, have a look at the response of those who are listening to Jesus. See what they thought he was saying. Turn back to John chapter 8 to see that. See, as soon as Jesus has said these words, I am, the people, the Jews, they pick up stones to stone him. They are clearly upset at what Jesus has just said. For us as 21st century Australians, we still might miss some of the significance here Again, but not Jesus' audience. When he was speaking, they act immediately and they react to stone Jesus. Do you think they did the stoning just because there happened to be stones lying around? Well, maybe, but I suspect there are probably a few bits of wood that they could have hurled at him as well and maybe a knife or two that they could have got out and done a little bit of stabbing if they wanted to. But it's stones that they pick up and it's stones that John mentions. And I think he does that. Because the punishment for claiming to be God is death by stoning. That's what it says in Leviticus 24. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord is to be put to death. The entire assembly must stone them, whether foreigner or native born. When they blaspheme the name, they are to be put to death. And so I think this leaves us with little doubt about what Jesus is doing here. He is equating himself to the great I am. This is not new in John's Gospel. Right at the very start of the Gospel, we read this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I want to ask you today then, is this how you think about Jesus? I reckon many of us have got in our heads a picture of Jesus. And I imagine that that picture will come with limitations. Perhaps the picture is formed by a cartoon drawing you saw of Jesus or reading about Jesus in the storybook Bible. Or maybe that picture was started in your younger days. Jesus with a long beard and a flowing white robe. I mean, maybe he wore those things. But is your image of Jesus constrained to just a Jesus who is gentle and mild, whose bearded and his robe flows neatly behind him? Because here in John, we see that Jesus is the eternal God. We see him as the great I am. The great I am who, when he spoke to Moses, said, don't come any closer, take off your sandals for the place you're standing is holy ground. Does your image of Jesus leave room for reverence and awe and majesty? Do you have a big enough view of who Jesus is? Do 
Because when we have a big view of Jesus, we'll see so much more clearly what he's able to do, revealing God to us. And I think it's only if we see Jesus as the great I am, as the Alpha and the Omega, as the Creator, as the Lord of heaven and earth, as the King of kings, that I think we'll begin to treat his words as we should. Wise teachers say some wonderful things. I've benefited so much from those who have invested good advice into my life. I've been blessed with mentors and wise people who over the years have told me great things to do. And I value that. But at the end of the day, they are just people like me. They are human and flawed and fallible. But Jesus is the great I am. He is God. The words he speaks are the very words of God. This section started with Jesus saying to the Jews who believed him, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Today I want to encourage us to really hold to Jesus' teaching as his disciples. Because he's not just the best teacher in the world. He's the great I am. The one who reveals the Father. The one who is eternal. The one who is the first and last. And if he's that... We must listen to him. We've got to listen to him even when it's hard, even when we don't want to obey. Remember there's some great promises in this as well though. If we obey, we will never see death, never taste death. That's the promise from a God who is eternal. I'm going to pray for us. Father God, we give you great thanks that you've revealed yourself in Jesus. We pray that you would help us to have a view of Jesus that's big enough to incorporate his majesty and supremacy and his rule in the world. Please help us to listen and obey through your spirit. Amen.